You are listening to the CMC Podcast. Join us each week for messages designed to equip, inspire, and motivate. And now for today's message from Student Pastor Josh Barnett. Well, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Let's get started. Man, I love that last song that they did, that the worship team did. Man, so good. I was just thinking about all the tradition and the spirit of religion, just everything that Jesus broke and things that we fall into where we begin to elevate tradition and just this is the way we do things because we've always done this things this way and the way we even study in Galatians, things that I slip into that I don't even realize that I, you know, that I slip into. It's like religion is just like this leaven of things that get us. I, uh, in Proverbs, it says, there's a way that seems right, but then in the, the end thereof is death. And I heard a pastor explain it one time that, that that is not necessarily talking about sin. It's talking about religion because religion seems right. Religion seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And it's that spirit of religion that got the Pharisees, that got the Jews. And, and tonight we're going to look and see where it almost got uh, the Apostle Peter here. So let's look in verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him, this is Paul talking, oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy and even Barnabas was led astray. Now, it's important if you, if you missed last week with, where Pastor Tim was teaching on the council in Jerusalem from Acts 15, it, that, that's what the first part of chapter 2 is about. And if you missed that, you need to go check it out because it really makes this, this part shocking to me because they had just had the council in Jerusalem and Barnabas and Paul and Titus had traveled to Jerusalem to have this uh, to have this first Christian conference, basically, where they, they met, they really, they met in private, but they were talking about, well, what do, what, do they, what do the Gentiles have to do to be a part of our faith? And basically, it resulted in, um, they don't have to be circumcised, because that would be them living under the law, and they don't have to have these dietary restrictions, and oh, also, Paul, tell them to remember the poor, and Paul says, well, of course, I want to remember the poor anyway. Um, but they basically said, that we're not going to require the Gentiles to follow these Jewish laws and customs, because we are saved uh, through our faith in Christ. All that just happened. And then Peter returns to Antioch and proceeds to do this. <laughs> He's come to the church in Antioch and they had just solved the issue that we are saved by faith in Christ, not by observing the Mosaic law. And Peter seems at first like he's doing just fine until it says men or friends from James show up. And so friends from James, James would have been the head of the church in Jerusalem, and he would have had disciples that had come to Antioch, and they would have been Jews, and they show up, and then <laughs> they would have been Jews, believing Jews, circumcised, and apparently they're still adhering to some of the Jewish Mosaic laws and customs, and maybe, I guess, they weren't too fond of Gentiles. And so when they got there, Peter then begins to withdraw from the Gentiles and just eat with the Jews and has nothing to do with the Gentiles. Now, this, this is wild because it's the Apostle Peter. And this is like middle school lunch behavior. I mean, this is embarrassing. <laughs> this is really embarrassing. This is not the behavior of Peter, the Apostle, the one to preach the first sermon about Jesus, the one whose shadow was healing people. 
to do this. And it was probably over what they were eating. And, and even Jews wouldn't, they wouldn't even have, they wouldn't even invite Gentiles in their homes. They would call them sinners and say they couldn't even have fellowship with Gentiles. But Peter, which is wild because if you go to Acts 10, Peter is the one that got the revelation to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's the one that had the dream about the food and God said, rise up and eat and then brings him to Cornelius' house and sees Gentiles. So it is wild to me that Peter falls into this. Now, what, so what does the Apostle Paul do? Well, the Apostle Paul is one, as we've seen so far in this book, he is not one to mince words or shy away from conflict. Actually, this entire letter is confrontational. <laughs> it says that he opposes Peter to his face in front of everyone, in front of everybody in Antioch. And not only did he oppose him to, before the church in Antioch, but he also wrote about it now. So we're still talking about this embarrassing moment that Peter, <laughs> Peter had. And Paul's just basically letting everybody know, I, I don't care who you are. If you start preaching or living a different gospel than what was given to us by Jesus, I will oppose you. Because Peter and Paul, they're like the two top dogs. I mean, Tim said it last week, like the first part about, of Acts is about Peter and the last part's about Paul. Like these are the two guys. And, um, and Paul goes right at him. And Paul shows us that God doesn't show favorites. He's no respecter of persons or titles or positions. God is willing to correct anyone. He's willing, he will discipline everyone. No one is above reproof. And we see in verse 13, this is serious because uh, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by hypocrisy. Barnabas had already gone on mission trips with Paul. He was, the, he was the leader of the church in Antioch at the time. And so even other pastors are being influenced by Peter's hypocrisy. And so Paul has to do something. And you just, I mean, you think how embarrassing and how humbling. Um, you know, Peter, first of all, you know, he was doing this to look good. He was doing this to look good to his Jewish buddies, to like, you know, to save face. But how humbling, like you're about to get chewed out in front of both groups. And so now you're not going to look good to either group. <laughs> now, now, you know, now it's going to look really, really bad. And if you've ever been rebuked publicly, it's not fun. <laughs> it is definitely not fun. This event is significant because the Judaizers, the ones who were trying to mix the gospel and the law together, they were slandering Paul to the Galatians, claiming he wasn't impossible, claiming he wasn't an apostle. This is him once again refuting that, showing that he not only has authority uh, along with the leaders, but also he has authority where he can even confront uh, the, the man Peter that they would have respected face to face. We need to know this, truth always has authority over any man. Truth has authority over any man, any title, any position, and any rank. No man is above truth. No man is above correction. There was only one man that was infallible, and that was Jesus. No one. Peter is not above that. He's the intimate friend of Jesus. He performed miracles. He, he saw the dead raised. He was, he was on the mountain of transfiguration. My, like, my goodness. Matthew 16, Jesus said, Peter, like, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Like, I'm going to set you up as a leader in the church. Oh, my gosh. Peter. <laughs> Jerusalem had been this private meeting but now this was going to be a public showdown in Antioch because obviously Peter is not getting it. He had caused a public scandal, so Paul was going to deal with him publicly. Now, we've got to get this. Just because you get rebuked doesn't mean the person doing the rebuking is being rude. 
We've, we've got to be able to take correction. We've got to be able to take hard words without getting offended. We've got to be able to receive truth. And, and, and two things that the church as a whole has got to get back to. Number one, we've got to be okay with discipline. We have got to be okay with discipline. I would say for every single person, correction is necessary for growth. Correction is necessary for growth. And I would also say every single person, we develop blind spots. We develop places in our life that we can't see, that we need somebody to call us out, that we need somebody to come and rebuke and correct us. And, and, and I, this is, if you'll do this, if you'll humble yourself, this will actually make it easier. Have friends in your life that you give permission to, to rebuke you that you give permission to, to call you out whenever you are not living according to scripture, whenever you're not living according to the Christian, that, the type of man or the type of woman that you said that you are going to have, have friends that will come and call you out. Two friends in my life, Jason Ross, Brandon Tryon, I have given them permission to call me out. Uh, my wife also has permission, while well as in my right mind, I told her this, she has permission to call them whenever I am not acting the way that I'm supposed to be acting. So that, that, now that's never happened, praise the Lord. But she has permission to call them if I ever start acting uh, in contradiction to the type of man that I said that I'm going to be, or the type of man that I claim to be from the pulpit. That's and that's, that's good accountability. But then I can't get offended if they actually confront me about a blind spot because I've given them permission to speak into my life. And both of them on different occasions have rebuked me. And it's, if you know me, it's usually because I'm critical. I get very critical of, of ministries and churches and people, and Brandon and Jason both have pulled me aside and said, hey man, you are being, you, that is not, the spirit of Christ is not on that. That is not, you're not, show, you're not showing love, you're being very critical and very nitpicky. And they've both called me out. And at first it's like, you know, my defenses go up. It's like, mm, you're right, dang it, you're right. <laughs> so we have, number one, we've got to be okay with church discipline. Number two, as the church disciplining and as the body, as we're supposed to hold each other accountable, we've got to be bold in our discipline. We've got to be bold in our discipline. The church cannot let things go unnoticed and not dealt with. Don't let sin continue in your friend's life, in your brother or sister's life. You've got to call them out. Bill Johnson says that if, he, he calls it unsanctified mercy. If you know that your brother or sister is stumbling or that they're struggling with something and you don't call them out, it's unsanctified mercy. So it's mercy, but it's not from God. It's not holy mercy. And he explains it like this, you would not leave your friend in a house that is burning down. You would come and tell them to get out. But we also have to be aware, just seeing from Peter's example, we also have to be aware that there's other people in the house. Our sin doesn't just affect us. Our decisions don't just affect us, they affect others around us. And so we've got to be bold in our discipline. And it's, I think sometimes we're afraid of offending people and like we'll just love them, but, but love absent of truth is not real love. And if we just let that behavior go on and unchecked, people either they're blind spots and they don't see what's going on or they go, I got away with it. I can keep doing it. I can keep doing it. I can keep doing it. And, it. and we become, you know, the frog in the boiling pot where we don't even realize that, that the fires of hell are literally heating up around us. 
And so we've got to be bold in our discipline and we've got to be willing to call out our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I, I believe it's Proverbs 18 says that a man who isolates himself is destined for destruction. And Proverbs 22 says, better are wounds from a friend than kisses from an enemy. And if, if you're only surrounded by people who talk about how awesome you are and how amazing you are and how incredible you are and just pat you on the back and bless your heart and all they are are presenting kisses, you may not have friends. You may have enemies. You've got to have friends that, that are willing to wound you, that are willing to cut you deeply so that you can be the man or woman that God has called you to be. Confrontation is never fun, but when done right in a holy manner, the results are, the results are beneficial to both parties. I think everybody is afraid of confrontation many times because they're worried about the outcome. They're worried about the fallout. They're worried about offending someone. But here's the deal, if, God, if that person is in the wrong, God is calling you to correct them and you speak that truth, you, you, your responsibility is not their response. Like the response is on them. And so you, you, there is no guilt if they respond the wrong way because you're doing what God has told you to do. And if they try to shame you and guilt you because you're calling out something in them, and I'm not saying that we're per, you're purposely mean, like we can have a nice tone, we can be graceful as we rebuke, but at the same time, like their response, and, and, and here's the deal, if you say it to them, even if they respond the wrong way, they then have to go and think about it. They then have to go home and look themselves in the mirror. Our responsibility is not their response, our responsibility is that we call it out like God has called us to and like he has told us to, and that we confront the sin that is destroying our brothers and sisters. And that's hard. That's something that a lot of people don't want to do. <laughs> and listen, allow the Holy Spirit to work on them. Call, I, I've had people get mad and offended at me because I called something out and they were mad and offended at me for five years. And then down the road, they come back, right? And a lot of pastors and leaders and people who have been here for a long time, they come back years later and they say, you're right. Holy Spirit was trying to use you and I refused to listen to that. And, and you see incredible, and listen, that's always the goal. The goal is always reconciliation. The goal is always restoration. The goal is always to bring them back to who God has called them to be. So confrontation is important. It's not condemnation. It's not to win an argument. It's to restore that person to Christ. But here Peter stands guilty. <laughs> Peter is guilty. Um, and apparently he offers no, apparently he responds the right way because he offers no defense. We see, we don't see uh, Peter's response at all. So most likely he humbled himself and, uh, and, and ate some crow there. We as a church, as the body of Christ, we have to keep the truth of Christ in the church over peace. Truth is more important than peace. And I would say that actually you don't have true peace if there's no truth. The truth is what sets us free, not peace. In, and, and I will say, in bondage, there might be peace on the outside, but there's no peace on the inside. It's the truth that shall set you free, and Jesus is the way, the truth. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we've got to know that peace is not necessarily the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of Jesus. Peace is the presence of Jesus. And oftentimes, confrontation is necessary for obtaining and maintaining peace. 
Oftentimes, confrontation is necessary for the obtaining and the maintaining of peace. If you have had kids, you know that to be true. If you have had little ones grow up in your house, if you want some peace, there's going to have to be some confrontation. If you want them to brush your teeth the first time that you tell them to, there's confrontation. But if you don't confront, there won't, <laughs> there won't be peace. And if you let it go on, it'll just get worse and worse and worse and worse. <clears throat> peace, I would say peace without truth is a false peace. I would actually say that it's peace from the devil. I would say it's demonic. Unit, I would say unity without the real gospel isn't really unity. And I would say that you see many churches today sacrificing truth on the altar of peace and unity. And that's an idol. That's not real peace and that's not real unity. I see the church church is making an idol out of peace at all cost or unity at all cost. And so that's where you get into where, where, where churches are ordaining people in the LGBTQ. That's, that's unity at all cost. And I would say there might be peace on the outside, but those people are bound. <clears throat> there's, a, there, there's people who are, who are fearing man more than they fear God. And many churches today have married themselves to false doctrines and man-made theories, not because they believe in them, but simply because they are afraid of the mob. They're afraid of being canceled. They're afraid of being persecuted. And this may, this may produce a temporary peace on the outside, but they're going to be full of death and turmoil and anxiety and fear on the inside. <clears throat> we have to, and, and listen, I don't, here's the deal. This is truth. You know, God bless Stephen Furtick and Bill Johnson and T.D. Jakes and Craig Groeschel and whoever you follow on your Instagram and Twitter. God bless them. I don't care what they say. What does this say? I don't care what man-made theories or ideologies or anything that any other church gets into. I want to know, I want to know what scripture says. I want to know what the Bible says. I want to know what they, ha what it, what they have called us. And we, we can't afford to have knee-jerk reactions to emotions. And I saw a lot of churches this last year, they had knee-jerk reactions to emotions, and they try, and I'll, I'll just say this, they tried to go about racial, racial reconciliation the wrong way. The answer's in here. This is the book on racism. I don't need a man-made ideology. <laughs> this is what I need right here, but I saw a lot of churches bowing their knees to these man-made theories, and it is causing havoc in our nation now. <clears throat> We have to know, we have to know many times before peace can be achieved, conflict must arise. Sometimes between nations, political leaders, businesses, relationships, people in themselves. Conflict, we, we have to see conflict is not always ne negative. Many times it's positive and necessary. Dar Listen, darkness always tries to resist when you turn the lights on. Darkness will try to resist when you turn the lights on. Jesus, the Prince of Peace himself, said, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus, I thought you were the prince of peace, man. Mean tweet. <laughs> Can't believe you would say that. A sword? Golly, that's violent. <clears throat> he said this to his disciples as he was sending them out to preach the gospel, to perform signs and wonders, to go to different towns, and he was explaining to them what's going to happen. I'm sending you out into the world with a spiritual sword. 
You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be abandoned. And we have got to know when you go all in on Jesus, people are going to turn away from you. People are going to persecute you. You will lose friends. You will lose family. But as you do that, a supernatural peace takes over your heart, your mind, and your soul, a peace that passes all understanding. And you'll see anxiety and fear and depression and bondage and internal warfare begin to slide off of you as you follow him. And listen, I am saying this as a man where this spiritual sword has divided me from some of my family. So I'm not saying this as like some kind of theory, but I say this as a man who stands in perfect peace that passes all supernatural, passes supernatural understanding, like it passes all my natural understanding, it's supernatural that has filled me. I say that as a man that has been divided from people in my own family because of this gospel that I believe. And I say that my heart hurts for him, for sure, and I'm praying for him and I'm believing for him, but I also have this peace that I would not have if I compromised to get it. <clears throat> Let's go back to, back to Antioch. <laughs> Paul confronts him, <laughs> confronts him in person. Um, this is a, a very, the most serious matter. Um, you go to verse, let's read verse 14 actually. It says, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, this is such like a, this is like a statement that I feel like my mom would ask me. It's just like such a cut it's because it's like a question. It's not like here's, it's not like a statement. It's like he's asking Peter, but it's like one of those duh questions. Um, so sorry. He says, since you, a Jew from birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow Jewish traditions? So he, he calls them out right in front of the Jews that he's, he has separated himself with the Gentiles and he's all holier than thou. And I'm like, I don't eat with those guys. I only eat those guys. And I don't eat that meat. I only eat this because this is kosher and this is blessed and this is the law. And yes, like I don't hang out with anybody that's uncircumcised. I'm circumcised and I'm a Jew and all, all this stuff. And, 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 and Paul comes up to me and says, well, you live like a Gentile, except when these guys are around. What are, you, what are you doing, right? It's such like, a, it's such like a, a parent response, really, like asking him this. And how embarrassing to be Peter, <laughs> to get that question. And, and, and really, Paul called him out like, dude, you're, you're a hypocrite to both sides here because you don't live either way there. <clears throat> when he says, when Paul says in verse 14, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message. It was, it was, we've already seen very clear. The Judaizers were saying loud and clear that you can only be right with God if you put yourself under the demands of the law of Moses. So they were trying to make people be circumcised, uh, eat a kosher diet, observe certain feasts and rituals um, that they could not have anything to do with anyone who was not under the law of Moses. And they had to do those things to receive the salvation of Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't that they were saying don't believe in Jesus. It's that they were trying to mix the gospel, they were trying to mix Jesus with the law and they do not mix. <clears throat> Peter knew the truth, but he was playing the hypocrite and he was doing it to gain popularity, to look good with the Jews. N.T. Wright says this, he says, it isn't a matter of a few twists and turns in the Jewish law. It isn't simply about one style of missionary policy against another. It is the matter of who you are in the Messiah. It's as basic as that. As that. Paul's head-on clash with Peter in Antioch was about the basic Christian identity itself. And now, after this confrontation, we have verses 15 through 21. And I believe that verses 15 through 21 are one of the greatest passages of all of Scripture. 
Paul is going to use Peter's failure as a launching pad to explain justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Peter's behavior was condoning legalism and violating the very, this very core doctrine, the very foundation of our belief. Now, you may ask, what is the doctrine of justification? I'm glad you ask. It is the good news that sinful men, sinful women can be brought into the acceptance of God, not because of their works, but simply through faith in Jesus Christ. This is where the Christian faith starts. Justification is the beginning. Everything else we have is built from there. This is the very doctrine that Peter was undermining. Let's read verses 15 and 16. It says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Did you catch verse 16 there? He said the same thing three times. He repeated himself three times. I would say if scripture ever repeats something, pay attention. There is glory and repetition. And in verse, verse 16 is, should be one of the most important passage, verses that we know. It is the doctrine of justification. Okay, the first time he makes a general truth statement. He says, we are made right. We are justified with God by our faith in Christ, not by obeying the law. The second time he says it, he makes it personal. He says, we, you and I, Peter, we have been justified by our faith in Christ, not because we obeyed the law. And then the third time, he makes it universal. No one's ever, ever going to be made right by obeying the law. And so he repeats it three times. And, I, and I, we've got to know he repeats it because we, even today, we have such a propensity to get caught up in works. We have such a propensity to try to earn something from God, try to earn favor, like God's going to show us special attention because we do certain things for him or that we are going to somehow be made more right with God, or like maybe we struggle with sins or things that we did in the past, and so I, I've gotta like pay a penance to like make up for it. That is all works-based religion, and that is not what we believe in any way, but it's something that so slips in, I would say, especially um, in the, the Bible Belt, it's something that we especially struggle with. Throughout scripture, Justification refers to God declaring a sinner to be guiltless on the basis of faith in him. It is a free and gracious act by which God declares a sinner right with himself, forgiving, pardoning, restoring, and accepting him on the basis of nothing but trust in him. Trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, faith, what is, what is faith? Faith is not... It, and Tim explained it a little bit last week from, from James that, that faith, and, faith and works are, are, are married together. Faith is not um, an intellectual belief that God is real. Faith is not an intellectual belief that Jesus died on the cross, was buried for three days and rose again and ascended to heaven. It's not an intellectual belief, an intellectual agreement with scripture. That's where it starts. But real faith is a faith that is from a heart level that says, I know he's real. I know he did that. I'm going to put my trust in him. Faith, faith is, 
Faith is when, when Jesus walks on water while Peter's sinking, Peter reaches up and grabs his hand. That's faith. faith I, I've heard it explained this way before. It, I can believe that a chair is real. But if I don't sin at it, I show no trust in it. Does that make sense? That is the belief. Like, I, I, I believe that this table is real, but if I'm not using it, if I, don't, if I don't put anything on it, and that's what our faith in Christ is, is that he did the work. Now I just trust him with my life. And from putting that faith in him, good works are going to be a byproduct of that. That's a good point, Josh. Thank you for that. <laughs> Faith starts with a belief at a heart level that is then reflected by trusted obedience to God. <clears throat> James says, even the demons believe and they tremble. So a simple belief is, is not enough. It's a firm conviction that produces an acknowledgement of his truth. And that, that acknowledgement, that conviction causes me to surrender. And then my conduct is consistent with my surrender. That's what faith is. I've heard uh, a pastor say before, faith alone saves, but that faith that saves is not alone. In other words, faith is shown to be genuine by the fruit that it bears. Good fruit testifies to a good root. The fruit does not save the root, but it simply demonstrates the root of real faith. Let's move on to verse 17. Verse 17 says, but, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us to sin? Now, this one is a little tricky uh, to interpret, but it's, it's basically Romans 6 verse 1. It's basically seeing the justification of Christ, the goodness of Christ, how incredible it is. You go through Romans 1 through 5, and by the time you get to Romans 6, you're going, oh my gosh, that's too good to be true. Does that mean that we just continue sinning? That's how good his grace seems, that we just continue living this lifestyle and we are saved. And Paul says, absolutely not. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But his grace does seem that incredible and that amazing. He's showing us here that we are justified by faith. And, and, and he, he's kind of showing us that, well, if we sin and we're still righteous, does that mean that Christ has led us into sin because he's been forgiven? Because I've been forgiven, I've been set free. If I go, if I, if I go blow it tonight, if I get angry and, 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 and say something uh, the wrong way to my wife and I react out of my anger and I sin against her, I'm still forgiven. I'm still forgiven. I'm still washed in the blood. God doesn't disown me because I messed up. But God didn't lead me into that sin and that's what Paul's saying here. He doesn't lead us into that sin. We've got grace, justification by faith is not a license to sin. And Paul is saying that Christ didn't lead us out of the law and make us sinners like the Gentiles. He's, he's not saying we can live however we want. He's not saying that Christ is a sin promoter. <laughs> Verse 18, rather I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of the law that I already tore down. So what he's saying is I've been saved by faith. I've been walking this thing out. I'm following him. And then I go, that's not enough. Let me start doing this, 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 and this, and do these things that I used to do. He's then saying that's blasphemy. That's like the worst of sin. If I say that I put my faith in Jesus, but then I go back to obeying the law. 
And this is what Paul is trying to explain to Peter of Peter. This is bad, bro. This is really bad, Peter. You already denied him once. Do you know what you're doing now, Peter? You're denying him again. <laughs> he's kind of beating around the bush, but that's what, you know, that's what he, he is saying there. And he's letting him know, like, you guys understand justification. Like, what? P- like, Peter, Barnabas, what are you doing? <clears throat> and I would say doing things like this in our own life makes us really, can make us really miserable people. When we come to Christ by, by grace through faith, we experience a supernatural freedom, but then we slowly start sliding into a works-based consciousness. We slowly try, try, start trying to earn merit and favor with God, thinking that doing things for him will cause him to love me more. And I want to say this to you tonight. I think that is simply because we get saved. We have this radical, amazing emotional experience. We get on fire for the Lord and we do really awesome for a couple months or a couple years or whatever. I would say what happens is we begin to slowly fall out of the place of prayer. We begin to slowly fall out of our daily communion with him. Same thing has happened in marriage. We begin to slowly fall out of intimacy. And when we slowly fall out of intimacy, with the Father, then we begin to think he's mad at me, he's frustrated with me, he's doing this, there's distance in our relationship, so it's like, okay, well, I gotta go to church, and I gotta do this, and I gotta memorize this many Bible verses, and I gotta do this, and I gotta do this, and I gotta do this, and I do this, and before long, it's like, man, that's, that, we're miserable, and you see people walk away from their faith completely because they, we can't do, we can't do that. It's already been given to us. Feel, I want you to feel this freedom tonight. God loves you 100% all the time all the time, 100% all the time. And God's never going to stop loving you. He's going to love you 100% all the time, 10,000 years from now, not based on your behavior, based on the behavior of Jesus. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. Do you know what that produces in the heart of a man? Man, I, it's not that I have to do things for him, it's that I get to do things for him. It's like, a, it's, a, it's this supernatural grace. Grace is not a license to sin. What it does is it empowers me to live the way he's called me because it's out of an overflow of love that I begin to do these things. Not that it's a checklist of these things that I've got to do. <clears throat> All right, verse, oh my gosh, I got three minutes. Y'all been holding me up. Because 19 through 21 is the best part. 19 through 21 says, for when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by putting trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. I do not treat the grace uh, for it. If keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. This is the best part. I'm, I'm dead to the law. I'm dead to the law. What does that mean? It means the law no longer has a hold on me. Here's the deal. It means that I have been executed. What does he mean by I have been crucified with Christ? It means that when the law comes looking because I stand guilty against it, it means the punishment has already been taken. That's it. I broke the law and the punishment has been served. So there's no longer any punishment for me. So I'm now dead to it. There's this old movie. I, I'm not promoting this movie in any way. So if you go watch it, like, man, I can't believe Pastor would watch that. There was a pre-Christ Josh 
that I have no idea, but it's been like 15 years since I've seen this movie. There's a movie with Ashley Judd called, called Double Jeopardy, where her husband fakes his death and frames her for the murder. Well, she goes to prison, and while she's in prison, she hears, the, uh, she's talking to her kid on the phone, and the dad walks in, and the kid goes, Daddy. And she's like, what? Like, he's still alive. Well, this lady in prison says there's this law called double jeopardy that if you serve your time and you get out and you go commit that crime that you actually hadn't committed, but you served the punishment for it, you don't have to go back to jail. And so she starts scheming. I'm going to get out and I'm going to murder this joker. <laughs> well, I know that's kind of morbid, but, 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 <laughs> but essentially the debt's been paid. I've already, the, the punishment has already been served. Jesus has been crucified for me. I can no longer be arrested for it. I thought that would get some more amens. <laughs> Listen, when you, and you've got to know now, when you blow it and the enemy comes knocking to put shame and guilt and condemnation to you, you simply point to the cross. You point to Jesus, the punishment's already been given. I'm dead to the law and I'm alive in Christ. I'm a new man. I've died. Behold, I'm a new creation. Jesus has resurrected me back to life. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the condemning, cursing, killing power that the law has has been taken by Christ on the cross. We were unable to meet the demands of the law. Therefore, the law is unable to save and it's unable to make us righteous. It provides no remedy and in fact just makes us aware of our sinfulness. You can see Romans chapter 7 for that. We are dead to the law so that we now can live to God, live unto God. That is our status. We have been changed. Our character doesn't remain the same. We, we move into new creation. Let me move on here. Galatians 2, Galatians 2.20, I think is, a, is just, it's got to be our life verse. It's everything. It's everything. It may be the most important verse that a believer can memorize. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave me for himself. Listen, I'm not anti-self-help, but that is all the self-help you need. I'm dead. It's no longer about what I want or what I feel. It's about what Jesus wants to do in me, with me, and through me. Self-centeredness is the opposite of the gospel. This life I now live, I live by faith, not by feelings. I don't, we gotta stop elevating our feelings. Feelings aren't bad, they can be the spice of life, but I'm not driven by my feelings. We, we, did, we did our youth pursuit conferences last weekend and Teddy Cross, he's the worship and youth pastor down at Walnut Valley, he spoke and he said, feelings didn't die on the cross for you, Jesus did. We don't follow them, we follow him. <laughs> we must be led by Jesus. And listen, this, this verb he uses, I have been crucified, is in all tenses. Now, I have been crucified, I remain crucified, I will always be crucified with him. Last verse, Peter is Paul is telling Peter and now the Galatians, if you try to go back to obtaining righteousness through obeying the law, you make the death of Christ meaningless. Peter, did he die for nothing? Peter, the law says do this and this and this and this. And grace says, Peter, it's done. It's done, Peter. The greatest heresy is to try and earn salvation rather than receiving it. God's grace is freely given 
His grace is, is favor, it's loving kindness that brings me joy and empowers my righteous living. And what I want us to see tonight is that law and grace do not mix. To mix is to go back to the law. Returning to the law nullifies the cross of Christ. The two pillars of the gospel are the grace of God and the death of Christ. And those are the two pillars that by its very nature, legalism destroys. The person who insists that we, he can earn salvation by his own efforts undermines the very foundation of Christianity and nullifies the precious death of Christ on his behalf. Y'all stand with me. <clears throat> I think I'm going to preach a sermon soon. I, it's been on my heart heavy, but I think I'm going to preach. I'm doing a couple Sunday mornings coming up, and I really want to preach on the difference in lawlessness and legalism. Because there is a fine line in between both of those called holiness. There's a fine line between lawlessness and legalism, and, it, and it's called holy, holiness. And holiness is where we are empowered by Christ to live like him. Are we going to blow it? Sure. Are, can we, are we forgiven? Absolutely. But God's grace is not a license for us to live in lawlessness. The Holy Spirit comes into our life, he comes into our hearts, and he begins to transform us at a heart level, and then that begins to transform my behavior. But if we don't allow the filling of the Holy Spirit to come in us to work from the, outside, from the inside out, and we try to do from the outside in, we're always going to fail. But we move from the, from the inside to the outside, and it's just an incredible, amazing journey. And when you go that way, it doesn't feel weighty. And it doesn't feel legalistic. It feels, it feels like freedom. Yeah. One thing I tell our young people all the time is, why would I want grace to be a license to sin? Why, what kind of grace leaves me in bondage? Because I was addicted. I was needy. I was lonely. I was caught up in pornography. I was caught up in drugs. I was caught up in alcohol. What kind of grace leaves me in that bondage? What kind of grace still allows me to stay in that place? I didn't want to stay in that place. I wanted real freedom, and real freedom is found in holiness that only comes from the Holy Spirit being on the inside of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, Jesus, that you lived the life that we couldn't live, and that when you lived that life, you took our dirty, nasty, sinful ways. You took those things off of us and put them onto yourself on the cross, and you took your clean, white, righteous robes and you put them on us so that we could come into, back into relationship with the Father, so that we, Jesus, could become co-heirs with you, so that we could be adopted, could become brothers and sisters in your family, and we now also can say, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, don't let us ever take this lightly, Lord Jesus. Don't let us ever take your sacrifice lightly. Don't let us fall into works like Peter don't let us turn up our nose and look down on others who may not seem as holy or appear as holy as we do. Fill our hearts full of love for one another and, and love for our schools and love for our community and love for those that we work with and love for the strangers that we see in the grocery store. Fill our hearts full of love for those people that we might shine bright for you. That we would shine bright for you, Lord, that we would point people to you. Lord, use this church. God, we lay our lives, we lay Christian ministries at your feet and we say, here we are, Lord, use us. Send us however you want, God. We'll, we'll go and we'll do. It's not, it's not that we're, we're doing it to earn something for you, God, but we're so excited about what you've done on the inside of us 
that we want other people to know this great peace and this great joy and most of all, this great love that you've bestowed upon us, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor, and we seal this time in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen and amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday morning. You have been listening to the CMC podcast. For more information about CMC, our different conferences, Christian school, college internship, resources, and more, go to cmchurch.com.